In his heyday, Big Willie Robinson could command the attention of hundreds of street racers. He'd don his derby hat, hop up into the back of a flatbed truck, and address the masses with a bullhorn. Back then, Drag Racing Magazine dubbed him King of the Street. Mel Jones, a street racer turned LA County Sheriff's deputy, remembers those days fondly. He would get up and get a speech in front of him. He sounded like somebody giving a, a sermon at a church. We're brothers, man. We're all brothers we have one thing in common. We like to street race our fast cars, and that makes us all one of the same. He was right. Twenty years later, it was a different story. By the late 1980s, Willie no longer ruled the scene. Bullhorn or not, racers didn't want to listen. Not only that, people didn't even want Willie hanging around the races including Fabian Arroyo. Big Willie had been dethroned. So I didn't like Willie coming out there. And he would come out there and he'd get the news out there and he'd do all that stuff. I didn't like it. I was probably his biggest protester. I, I couldn't stand him being there. I was like, why are you here? Why are you bothering us? Go do your stuff somewhere else. Leave us alone. Later, I asked Fabian what he meant by protesting. Basically, we just would avoid him. If he came and showed up, we'd leave. Big Willie's mere presence could send racers speeding away in the other direction. How did this happen? Brotherhood Raceway Park was shut down in 1984. To make matters worse, it was a time when L.A. could have used the track. Hardcore drugs, especially crack, were sowing chaos in parts of South Los Angeles. Maybe Big Willie was no longer the man for the moment. Could he reclaim his track and his throne? I'm Daniel Miller, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. And this is Larger Than Life, a documentary podcast about L.A. street racer Big Willie Robinson. When we last visited Brotherhood Raceway, it was 1980, and Big Willie was hamming it up with Darth Vader at a Star Wars event. He was still at the top of his game, but he was still fighting with the Los Angeles Harbor Commission. Their back and forth went on for several years, until the Harbor Department closed the track in 1984. It wanted back the city-owned land on Terminal Island for an industrial development. At the time, it probably didn't seem to Willie like a long closure was in the offing. The truth is, for almost a decade, the track had opened and closed often. Willie had always figured things out. But not this time. Fabian believes that civic leaders and law enforcement had come to view Willie and his track as merely a deterrent to street racing, and not a solution to bigger societal problems. They said there's a street racing problem. And then when there was no longer a problem, they said, we don't need Willie, the problem's solved. And then we closed the track down. Their problem wasn't street racing, their problem was gang violence. They didn't associate gang violence with street racing or anything, or realize that a lot of it was connected in any way. So they didn't think that Willie could help. But Big Willie wasn't just a street racer. The LA power players who backed Willie in the 1960s and 70s, like his biggest benefactor, Mayor Tom Bradley, knew that firsthand. Bradley and others gave Willie and the Brotherhood of Street Racers the support they needed to fulfill their mission. But the lessons of the Watts riots had faded. The wave of community outreach by law enforcement had largely been pushed aside for zero-tolerance policing. And that was due in part to the crack epidemic. Crack, a concentrated and cheap cocaine derivative, has hit the streets claiming a new class of addicts who say that once they tried it, they couldn't just say no. Brotherhood members like Greg Williams remember this. All of a sudden, you know, the 80s came out, 
drug days. There was a lot of shooting and killing and things and drug days. That was back in the drug days. It was the 80s. You know, cocaine was out during that time. The darkness engulfed large parts of South L.A. That's the roughly 50-square-mile section of the city that includes Watts and the area formerly known as South Central. And Big Willie was powerless to stop the influx of drugs. This community is falling apart. He did not like drug use, and he also didn't like alcohol, because he saw it. He saw people in his neighborhood stealing that used to have a job. He saw mothers, uh, you know, out there selling, selling themselves because of the drug use. The community's turning into the Wild West. People were dying of overdoses and in drive-bys. It seemed like the local news would lead each night's telecast with images of body bags being loaded into a coroner's ambulance. And they were running drugs through the whole community. And they didn't care. They figured they were just killing off all these people. That that didn't matter. It just spread like a disease. It spread far beyond Willie's community. My family's car business, which was located 10 miles or so from the heart of South L.A., wasn't invulnerable to the increasing violence and crime. My dad, Larry, who ran the dealerships with my uncle, remembers there were carjackings on test drives. People would pull guns on the salesmen and drive off with the cars. Then there were the drug dealers who'd try to buy vehicles on installment plans of their own devising. They'd offer up cash in $10,000 increments because deposits of more than that are reported to the government. As drugs flowed through Willie City, so did fast cars. Without Brotherhood Raceway, racing returned to the streets, and Fabian said drug lords overtook the scene. And we'd race those drug dealers. They were financing all these big races. I mean, they're racing for $20,000. Who has $20,000 to put on a race? A drug dealer. It'd take 20 of us, maybe 40 of us, to come up with that money. And they'd come up with it in two, three minutes. This must have been particularly galling for middle-aged Big Willie. He was staunchly anti-drugs. It may have been a bleak time for him, but not for Fabian. He was in his early 20s and always focused on the next race. Fabian had met Willie as a teenager testing his medal at Brotherhood Raceway around 1979. By the time racing returned to the streets in the mid-1980s, Fabian was affiliated with the Brotherhood, but he wasn't close to Big Willie. So he wasn't keen on hearing about Willie's efforts to get the track open again. That's why Fabian would leave when Willie came to the street races. And other racers didn't want to see a guy who might show up with a news crew or his pals from the LAPD when there was $20,000 on the line. You had a division. You had people that raced on the street, and then you had the other people that were supporting Willie. The people that supported Willie were behind Willie 100%, and they would come out with Willie when he went to these things. But we, none of us, really wanted Willie there. Because, again, we're all there to hustle. A lot of the people that actually raced were not behind Willie. This is the irony of the whole thing. The street racers were not behind Willie Willie's troubles were multiplying. He had lost support in the streets, and the Los Angeles Police Department seemed to have little time for him. Perhaps because, as Fabian suggested, the authorities didn't think Willie could help solve the city's problems. I tried to ask the LAPD about its relationship with Willie, but the department wouldn't give me an interview. Meanwhile, Mayor Bradley was distracted by his own mess. He had long delivered for Willie, but by the late 1980s, he was ensnared in several scandals, including criminal investigations into his financial dealings. And there was another issue, a more personal one for Willie. To some, he was starting to seem cheesy in an era of extreme violence. Willie's carefully crafted persona didn't really resonate anymore. 
I spoke to Willie's friend George Doty about this before I got the Street Racers records from the Army. The problem is everybody was tired of seeing him, I think, in his Vietnam fatigues and, and uh, you know, looking like he was fresh out of Vietnam. There was a time for that. Well, I think people just got burned out on it. It was like, you know, can we get past Vietnam? But that was Willie. That's, that was him. That was part of his makeup. Willie clung to this image of his own creation, despite it being a lie. Maybe it provided comfort at home during a difficult stretch. Willie and Tomiko were the first couple of street racing. They were both respected drivers, and they ran Brotherhood Raceway as a team. They did everything in lockstep, including piloting matching cars for a while, the King Daytona and the Queen Daytona. It seemed like together they were invincible. But not everything went their way. Willie and Tomiko tried to have kids for years, and it was a source of heartache that they hadn't become parents. Jean Davis Hatcher, Willie's little sister, said, We always talked about having uh, a nephew named Willie Andrew Robinson IV. How aristocratic that would sound. In an old scrapbook of Willie's, one his friend Ted Moser shared with me, there's a page with baby photos of Willie and Tomiko arranged in a collage. It's mostly black and white, save for a section in bright red and orange, where Willie wrote about their multiple miscarriages. You can feel his pain. If they had a child, the child would have had a phenomenal father and a phenomenal mother. After so much loss, Willie worked hard to give Tomiko other things she wanted. Fabian believes Willie spent this time in quasi-exile, working on his marriage. After all, Willie had devoted the last decade to Brotherhood Raceway. Now, he could be a private person for the first time in years. So, Willie fixed up their house in Inglewood, adding a swimming pool and other special touches. He was more working on his relationship with Tomiko. Because he had built her the house, he built the pool, the, the dining room set he had at that house. There was a handmade dining room set he had made, and they were working on their lives together, you know, because they weren't sure what was going, what the next thing was. Even as Brotherhood members were pulling away from Big Willie, he was withdrawing too. It was hard for me to find him or see him during that time. You know, everybody was playing low-key a little bit. Willie's version of low-key still involved hustling. Brotherhood Raceway was never lucrative. Any profits seemed to go right back into it. But operating the track had perks, like sponsorships and freebies from firms in the auto industry. Now, that was gone. To make ends meet, Willie sold bootleg movies. His specialty? Animated films by the Walt Disney Company, like Cinderella and Bambi. Here's Willie's friend, Van Anderson. You'll probably call it, I got uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. I got it on VHS. You know you can't get nowhere on VHS. They ain't got it on nothing. Nobody has copied nothing. And he'll, $75 a copy. <laughs> this wasn't Willie's only questionable side job. He also did something that may have been in contradiction to his ethics. Big Willie the Peacemaker sold guns. Several people told me about it, including Doty. What kind of guns did he sell? Oh, I don't want to get him in trouble. I mean, I know he's not here, but he sold everything from silencers to fully automatic weapons. I mean, who was he selling them to? Oh, different people, I guess. I don't know. I didn't ask for a, a list of his buyers. We can't know how Willie felt about this hustle, but it was a risky turn. 
Willie may have been tight-lipped about it, but running guns was perilous. Fabian said the authorities were on to him. Feds show up, ATF, whoever it was, they show up and they raid his house. And they find corners of the house nobody even knew about. The agents search Willie's home high and low for guns. And they go into the cellar, and then you have to move the table to get to the cellar. They go up into the attic. They go everywhere looking for guns. They don't find the guns. Now they're kind of being cool with Willie, talking to Willie. They're kind of glad they didn't find anything. Willie got lucky, because Fabian said the guns were there, but not where the agents bothered to look. So they're kicking back in front of this car, and they're leaning on the car, and it never dawns on them to check the car. And all the guns are Everything he's got happened to be in the trunk of that car. For whatever reason, he was taking them down to get clean. Something was up with them, and he had them all in there. This was a break, but it seems like those were rare around this time. And if L.A. was unforgiving in the 1980s, the 90s were about to get worse. New riots would soon overtake South L.A., the verdicts put into motion a series of events that made L.A. look like a war zone. In April 1992, the four LAPD officers who viciously beat black motorist Rodney King were cleared of charges related to excessive force. What the cops did to King, it was videotaped and played endlessly on TV. South L.A. erupted. Four days of violence, looting, and fires that caused Governor Pete Wilson to call out the National Guard. When the smoke cleared, hundreds of millions of dollars in property went down in flames. I remember the L.A. riots. I was nine years old. My mother, Adrian, picked me up from elementary school when the unrest began. She took me home and then to swim at a friend's house across the street. In the distance, a plume of black smoke rose ominously. My parents reassured me that armored military vehicles were guarding our neighborhood. I can't help but feel embarrassed when I say that I wasn't frightened during the riots. I was privileged. Fabian, though, he remembers watching people armed with guns patrol the roofs of their buildings, protecting them from would-be looters. In interviews, Willie never really explained how it felt to watch his city burn again. Almost 30 years after the Watts riots, he could only watch as another mess unfolded. His track was closed. He didn't have the rapport he'd once had with the LAPD when he helped keep the peace after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And Willie said the 1992 riots were a catalyst for other trouble. When the 92 riots went down, a wall broke out between the Mexican Mafia and the Crips and Bloods. And there were mucho killings, mucho drive-bys. Fabian saw another problem. By the time of the riots, Brotherhood Raceway had been closed for eight years or so. All that time, there was less and less dialogue with law enforcement. The racers and gangsters had grown disconnected from the cops they once hung out with at the track. Fabian said it got so bad that police officers stopped seeming like human beings. So they had to bring it back to these are human beings. These are people doing a job. Just as the Watts riots created an opening for Willie to be a peacemaker, it took another desperate time to lead to a second chance. But it wouldn't unfold exactly like the good old days. Because Mayor Tom Bradley, Willie's benefactor for more than 20 years, decided to not seek a sixth term. He left office a little more than a year after the violence, in July 1993. Still, it looked like Willie might have an in with Bradley's Irish-American Republican successor, Richard Reardon. Willie's connection? Otis Chandler, who by now had stepped down as publisher of the LA Times. 
Mayor Ridden was on television and he said, I'm the mayor of a wall zone and I need help. And so Otis Chandler called his buddy, Mayor Ridden, and said, you need Big Willie and the raceway. I've never been able to find the perfect comforter. Some were too thick and hot, while others were too thin and didn't feel cozy. I just wanted a comforter that kept me cool while still being comfortable so that I could actually get a good night's rest. Now with the Breeze Comforter from Buffy, I finally found that perfect comforter. The Breeze's 100% plant-based design is actually breathable, and it keeps you at a perfectly comfortable temperature in a way that polyester and downfield comforters just can't. The Breeze is made out of eucalyptus fabric, which is earth-friendly and uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow. Plus, the fiber is produced using recyclable earth-friendly solvents, so it's hypoallergenic too. You could try a comforter in your own bed for free, and if you don't love it, return it at no cost. For larger-than-life listeners, we have an additional special offer. To get $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter the code LARGER. Again, that's code L-A-R-G-E-R at Buffy.co for $20 off your order. I never really cared about socks before, but now whenever I put on a new, fresh pair, it feels like I'm floating. It's because I discovered socks that'll change the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Bombas are what feet dream about. They're made from super soft, natural cotton, and every pair comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's comfy but not too thick. With many colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas look great wherever you're going. I play basketball all the time after work, and with all those pick and rolls and hard cuts to the basket, I kept getting blisters on my feet. Now with Bombas, my feet feel supported and cushioned on and off the court. If you also want to join the sock revolution, Go to buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash larger today. You'll get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash larger for 20% off. Bombas.com slash larger. This was the fresh start Willie needed. He may not have had as close relationship with Reardon as he'd had with Bradley, but the new mayor could still be his patron. And perhaps things had gotten so bad in L.A. after the riots that no idea was too audacious to try, even if Willie's vision was a retread. Big Willie and Chandler were working together again. They might have lost touch, but they easily resumed their friendship. The mogul's son, Harry Chandler, sensed how strong their bond was. Willie knew a side of Big O that uh, a lot of other people didn't. Big O clearly appreciated Willie's place in L.A.'s automotive history. So much so that around this time, Chandler commissioned a 20-foot-long tapestry that paid tribute to Big Willie and the Brotherhood. Cars were a huge part of Chandler's life, too. He collected them for his museum and had raced professionally, taking part in a six-hour endurance competition. If Willie was going to get the Brotherhood's track open again, he really needed Chandler's help. And he came through. The tycoon wrote letters to the mayor and others advocating on Big Willie's behalf. They came at a pivotal time in 1993, just ahead of a crucial Harbor Commission meeting, where the board would discuss Willie's potential return to Terminal Island. But being Willie's advocate could be exhausting. Keith Collins, one of the artists who made the street racing tapestry, said Chandler complained about Willie. Though Collins reminded him, I said, well, he's, he's big Willie, man. He's not laid back Willie. He's big, step into your zone Willie. He goes, yeah, you're right. I want it. I want to help it. Maybe Chandler was reaching his limit with Willie, but he still helped get the track open again. Nine years after closing, the Raceway was back in business. Brotherhood Raceway Park reopened in November 1993. 
The deal the Harbor Department struck with Willie wasn't great for the Brotherhood. It could be booted when the city needed the land back, but it was good enough for the time being. Michelle Baez and her husband were the first ones to go down the drag strip in their saline Mustang. And you wait for the green light, and then your heart is getting that emotion, that adrenaline. That green light comes on, and you do the wheeling, and you come down, and then you go straight, and you just feel that G-force. It's like you ride in a roller coaster or some exciting ride, and you come off, and you're just like, wow, man, that was intense. Let's do it again. It's notable that a woman would have done the inaugural pass. It's a reminder that once his track was open again, Willie welcomed everyone. Tamiko even mentored Baez, who spent a lot of time at the raceway. She stood out. Women were far outnumbered by men. And Baez said some didn't take her seriously. I had to work so hard to earn not only Willie's respect, but the guy's respect. Back then, when I was growing up, you never saw a street race a girl, let alone be in a club with all guys. So I was proud to earn my stripes. Baez, who goes by the nickname Monster Michelle, told me about the time Tamiko took care of her when she was injured on the track. She had been struck in the face when a Volkswagen blew up during a burnout. But Tamiko's love had a steely edge. She wanted me to be tough, a tough, strong woman, and still be a feminine woman at the same time. It was tough love, and I knew where she was coming from. Meanwhile, Big Willie used the track to address new problems. We went and met with the leaders of the Mexican Mafia. I said, now I know about killings. And I told the Mexican Mafia, I said, hey man, I want you guys to come in peace. And we stopped the killings between the Mexican Mafia and the Drips and Bloods. Drive-by shootings went to zero. After the whole world saw cops beat Rodney King, it was more important than ever to have a haven where officers could try to connect with their community. And that happened at Terminal Island. It didn't happen anywhere else. I didn't just hear that from street racers. When I first started doing this race car thing, I'd show up at a car show. Man, I was like the freaking devil showing up. That's LA County Sheriff's Deputy Scott Graham. He heads a nonprofit called LASD Motorsports. It's a community outreach program that's focused on strengthening trust between law enforcement and the public, something that's easier to do when he's driving his eye-catching dragster. It's done up to look like a sheriff's cruiser down to the flashing lights on the roof. But for Graham, going to Brotherhood Raceway was nerve-wracking at first. I actually worked the gang unit in South Central LA. We go out, everybody knows who we are, and we're not sure who everybody else is. But I'm telling you, it was a neutral territory out there. Big Willie had our backs. There any any freaking nonsense whatsoever. Willie would talk to them. And Graham saw the impact. He said that while the track was open, racing on the streets all but disappeared because people had a place to go again. He and others said that this led to a reduction in crime related to street racing and other offenses. The violence at the time dramatically dropped. Community engagement could still work at a time when many people felt they couldn't trust the police. Remember, this was only a handful of years after Public Enemy urged people to fight the power, and NWA released a protest song about the police. You know the one. But at Brotherhood Raceway, Fabian witnessed people who otherwise were enemies come together in peace. Where are you going to find several Crips, several Bloods getting along, and they're getting along with a cop, doing exactly what the street says not to do? 
Big Willie wasn't able to command the streets as he once had. But after the raceway reopened, the Brotherhood could again spread its message. The track was still effective, and L.A. was better for it. Some public servants saw this and got behind Willie. People like Steve Soboroff, who served on the Harbor Commission in the early 1990s. Big Willie was a service provider. Just like Big Brothers is, just like the YMCA is, so was Big Willie. He was a service provider. He, he kept people out of jail. He kept them from fighting. He kept them from murdering each other. But Bradley was gone. And there just weren't enough officials who shared Soboroff's vision, especially when things went wrong. Brotherhood members said that the track became increasingly popular among lowriders. These enthusiasts customized their cars with hydraulic lift kits that allow them to be raised or lowered with the flip of a switch. It's a subculture depicted in movies like Boys in the Hood and rap music videos by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. But at Brotherhood Raceway, the hoppers and scrapers' presence attracted the attention of police. That's according to Brotherhood member Eddie Meeks. These were gentlemen that lower their cars and they hop them. They see how high they can get the car up. And once that element came into the racetrack, it started its downfall because the police were starting to get called more in, the helicopters were having to come down, and Big Willie did his best to corral that and stop that, but when you get thousands of people in an area, (laughs) so I guess you can imagine what happens there. A handful of incidents were well publicized, painting the track in a bad light. There was, for instance, a shooting involving two friends. They were buddies, but one was messed with the other one's girlfriend. Willie said that one of the men made a crude sexual remark about the woman, enraging the other. And so that made him go in his pocket and pull his 380 and pop off four rounds. But by the grace of God, nobody got seriously hurt. Though not everyone was unscathed. Here's Brotherhood member Harlem Brown. Didn't hit with his target, he hit some young lady in the hindquarters. Eventually, the gangsters who Willie tapped to work security at the track stepped in. But the Crips and Bloods, they caught up with him. Because when the police got there, they said everybody was peaceful, everybody was cool. These days, Brotherhood members speak about the shooting with a bit of wistfulness. It's almost amusing because of where the woman was shot. But the authorities weren't laughing. They were paying close attention. And in any case, that wasn't the only incident. There was a death at the track. I lost my dad on the track. I don't know if anybody has talked about somebody named Matt Perry, the school teacher. No, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Yeah, sorry. My dad died. My stepdad died on the track in my arms. Perry, whose nickname was school teacher, was a major presence at the track. And his fatal car accident devastated many. According to a memo written by Sobroff, then a harbor commissioner, Perry's car was so fast that it usually deployed a parachute to slow down. But on this day, and on this pass, his vehicle continued to accelerate after crossing the finish line, and the parachute didn't open. He went way past the finish line, and he never shut the motor off. It was just going as fast as he could go. Sobroff's memo said that Perry was rushed to a hospital, though Willie told Sobroff that Perry's heart stopped beating before he was put into the ambulance. Fabian sees how it could have been worse. If this happened on the street, he would have killed somebody. Look, racetracks are dangerous places. Brotherhood Raceway wasn't the first to deal with a deadly crash. Far from it. It's also not the only local racetrack where a shooting has occurred. 
In 2002, a dispute between two spectators at Irwindale Speedway left one dead and two other people wounded. After the incidents at Brotherhood Raceway, things did get more difficult for Willie and the Brotherhood. The Harbor Commission was documenting the trouble, and neighboring tenants at the port like Hyundai and Mitsubishi expressed safety concerns. I talked about this with Sobroff, who was a strong supporter of Willie. Now the president of the Los Angeles Police Commission, Sobroff got to know Willie well in the early 1990s, even taking his family to Brotherhood Raceway. He tried to help Willie, but the issues at the track weren't making it easy. And there weren't enough people who shared his view. Sobroff said that if people in power wanted to shut down Brotherhood Raceway, these incidents gave them ammunition. Somebody's dead, here's our excuse, let's kill it, if that's what they wanted to do. The Harbor Department documented every single issue at the racetrack. I mean everything. Brotherhood Raceway incidents, this is prepared by the Harbor Commission. 1128, vehicle carburetor fire, raceway personnel. It's a long list. I read the department's file to Fabian. 123, high-speed motorcycle race started while previous participants stalled on track. Near miss. Go-karts racing at same time as main drag strip. They're nitpicking. I mean, if you look in the history of drag racing, you're going to find all this same stuff happening at other tracks around the country. It's no different. After nearly a decade without a track, Big Willie had finally reclaimed his perch. And now the authorities wanted him to operate by the book. That meant racing had to stop at 8 p.m. Sharp. A dust-up over this was documented in the Harbor Department files. I shared the details with Fabian. At 19.30 hours, we were approached by LAFD Fire Inspector Steve Montiel, who asked about the ending time of the raceway permit. On this night, a fire inspector was there to make sure the racing ended on time. But Big Willie was fed up. He lost his cool. I read from the LAPD report. Big Willie got on the speaker system and began shouting, the fucking fire department and harbor department are shutting us down, but I'm going to take care of this with the mayor and the harbor commission this week. Willie was at his wit's end, and so was the harbor department. It shut the track down a year later, in October 1995, saying it needed the land on Terminal Island for a port-related business. The Brotherhood didn't know it, but this would be the last time its raceway was ever open. Fabian remembers what it felt like when it became clear a reopening wasn't likely. There's anger and frustration and sadness all in one. There's a lot of sadness. Sadness that my kids can't go there. That track could have changed a lot of people's lives. Sobroff agreed. He said that Willie losing the track was a loss for all of L.A. Because he believes that when Willie had his track, he could keep the city from burning. I think he'd be the first to tell you how many riots he stopped. How many times he knew both sides and said, guys, let's go to IHOP instead, you know? Willie's wholesome vision of Brotherhood Raceway as a place where all sorts of people could come together in peace may have made sense in the 1970s. But two decades later, given the climate in L.A., it felt like a pipe dream. So maybe what really led to the raceway's closure was a lack of interest from government or its prioritizing of commerce. Even though Willie had support from some powerful allies, he never really found a replacement for Bradley. Without a strong protector, the Harbor Department had its way with Willie. After the closure, Willie would spend years fruitlessly trying to reopen Brotherhood Raceway. Ironically, though, it was this effort that would bring Willie and Fabian closer together. After not seeing eye-to-eye for a time, they got to know each other better at the track in the mid-1990s, 
and solidified their relationship in the years after it closed. When we started talking again, I hadn't seen him in a while. So yeah, and he was telling me about the track was going to open and he's trying to get it open. And that's when I started really talking to him more and then helping him more. And that's when, you know, I got to know him a lot better. The vacant land where Brotherhood Raceway once stood remains earmarked for a harbor-connected use. These days, the property is a barren expanse, taunting the racers who once wowed crowds of thousands there. The next episode of Larger Than Life is our last one. We'll get into how Willie's story ends and take stock of his legacy. But before I could figure out how to do that, I had to see the site of Brotherhood Raceway for myself. Can you tell us what we're looking at? This is the entrance to um, Termo Island. But Termo Island itself is underneath all this crap. This stuff is like eight feet above the ground. You have to go underneath to get to the actual drag strip. Any trace of Brotherhood Raceway was erased long ago, or buried, as Fabian said. Terminal Island hasn't been home to a drag strip in 24 years. It's been seven years since Big Willie died. 12 years since Tomiko died. I love Tomiko and I loved Willie, and they both knew it. So there's, I just, I, I miss them. Making this day happen, it wasn't easy. We needed approval from the chief of the Los Angeles Port Police and an escort to get on site, in part because the former home of Brotherhood Raceway is fenced in and encircled by a rail line. Along with Fabian, we are joined by a few other Brotherhood members. Come on, Glenn. Fabian brought his 1994 Buick Hearse, the one painted light blue with flames on its flanks. And Donald Galaz brought his 1941 Chevy Gasser. His Brotherhood nickname is painted on the door, Donko. It hadn't dawned on me that they'd want to race, and they certainly didn't ask for permission. But as a handful of cops watched near their squad car, they quickly got into formation, not far from where the original starting line had been. Suddenly, another Brotherhood member who'd come along, Glenn Drevere, was positioning himself between the two cars, their engines growling as they crept forward until they were side by side. Drevere raised his hand, and in a flash, he dropped it. They were off. Once it was all over, I rushed to the competitors. Here's Galaz. It's awesome, man. This is awesome. This is just freaking crazy, man, just being out here to do this. It's been a long time coming. A lot of people ain't going to believe us that the gasser raced a hearse down here on Terminal Island today. This day was more than two decades in the making. I wish Willie was here to see this. Members of the Brotherhood will keep trying to get the track reopened. But the Brotherhood is not what it once was. Willie regularly claimed the group had tens of thousands of members, but a recent estimate pegged it in the hundreds. Still, no matter what happens, they'll have this day, a new bit of Brotherhood mythology created on the fly, though they might argue about whether the race was kosher. And what car was out in front? (laughs) I cheated on Donko, even though I told him I was going to (laughs) cheat. I had fun cheating on him. As the two cars raced down the road, they kicked up tons of dust. It billowed high in the air, watering eyes and blanketing the sight of Brotherhood Raceway for just a moment, giving it a dreamlike sheen. The salt air, the chirp of the gulls, the burbling idol of the gasser reverberating in our chests. It could have been 1975, or 1983, or 1994. 
you, you can't take that away. It was the coolest day. It felt like we were communing with the dead. All the people who made this place what it once was. Tom Bradley. Otis Chandler. The school teacher. Tamiko. Big Willie. Larger Than Life is reported and written by me, your host, Daniel Miller, for the Los Angeles Times. Our producer is Grant Irving. The editor is Catherine St. Louis. Kimmy Yoshino is our story supervisor. The executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Additional production by Karin Navatia. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Turek. Music by Nolan Schneider and Grant Irving. The sound engineer is Mike Heflin. Research by Scott Wilson, fact-checking by Laura Bullard, and copy editing by Rubena Azhar. Larger Than Life was recorded at Los Angeles Times Studios in El Segundo, California. The archival audio in this episode is courtesy of Film Archives. For more on Big Willie Robinson, including videos, photo galleries, and essays, visit latimes.com slash larger-than-life. Join our Facebook group. You can find us at Larger Than Life Podcast to discuss the story. And I'm on Twitter at Daniel N. Miller. You can also learn more about the story by subscribing to our Play Next newsletter, Go to latimes.com slash playnext. Larger Than Life is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. Larger Than Life is a production of LA Times Studios with support from Neon Hum Media. The chief then spoke to the mayor. The mayor said, bring Big Willie here.